You know, this past week, I celebrated my anniversary being here six years this past week. And, oh, thank you. But in those six years, how many times have some of you thought I was going to step right off this stage when I preached? Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, I had some of you come up to me at times after I preached, and y'all were taking, and not that you should be doing this in church, we're taking bets with your children whether I was going to be a meme because I went flying right off the edge of the stage. Uh, because I tend to, to walk around a lot. Even at seminary, the, the preaching professor told me that. Uh, and I would, in my, with my eyes closed praying, my toes would be halfway off the stage. And uh, there was a family, they said, we, we never close our eyes during the prayer because we just want to see if you go flying right off the edge. We want to see it happen. Um, but this little stage piece that we've got here, we've moved it around quite often for various reasons. Uh, people, you know, getting married or there's an event going on and they need it out of the way. And it, it, it's really heavy, but it lifts up and we slide it out into the hallway uh, it can be done by yourself, right, Micah? It can be done. It's difficult, but it can be done. It's a lot easier when you got more than one. But what you discover is uh, this stage, even though I would tend to almost walk off many times, uh, there's an unexpected, but when I say it, it's not unexpected. You wouldn't realize it, but you don't see it from where you're sitting. There's an essential component that keeps me from falling to the ground every week. Anybody know what it is? Screws. Say, oh, of course. If there weren't screws in this thing, it would tumble every single time I step on it. It wouldn't work at all. That's an essential component to this stage holding me up so that I can stand up higher than you. There was a while I preached from the floor, and it was difficult for anybody sitting in the back to be able to see over the heads of the people sitting in front of them. And so we stand on a stage so everybody can see the front. And it needs screws, little, you know, less than one cent screws in this stage piece to keep it together. Well, we're going to look at something interesting today. An unexpected, essential component. This is part 11 of our look at big faith. We've got one more next week. Next week is the finale of big faith. I know some of you are thinking, finally, we get to the end of this deal, part 12. But this is number 11, and we're, we're talking about an essential component of big faith. That if you don't have this, big faith is impossible. That if you don't have this, you're not going to have big faith. You might not even have little faith. You've got to have this one thing. And where we're going to see it, we're going to see it in two different places in Scripture. Because there's only twice that Jesus commends somebody else's faith. There's many times that Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. And actually, he tells the people who are closest to him that quite often, his own disciples. Oh, you have little faith. Little, you didn't have enough. Didn't have faith of the quality needed for the moment. But there were two times that Jesus told somebody uh, or told somebody else about the great faith of an individual. And we're going to look at both of them and see a common denominator between those two instances. The first one is in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus, for a while when he was doing his ministry, had a, a really a base of operations there's language, actually, we think, from the way it's described by his disciples, that he even had a house where he lived in this one area, and he would go and do ministry and come back to his home there, and he would stay for a little while, uh, but he continued to, to operate this way for a little bit. And this is one of those instances in Matthew chapter 8. 
uh, starting in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, centurion, that's a Roman military official. He's a centurion, century, he's over 100 guys. He's in charge of 100 guys. He's a very important man in, in uh, the Roman you know, occupation. He's a very important guy. He wouldn't be expected to believe any kind of uh, religious thing, but he comes to Jesus. He seeks Jesus out. And he calls him Lord, says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, and he's suffering terribly. Now, we're terribly, that, that means uh, a negative to the extreme amount, to the, I mean, to the utter extreme. He says he is, is, is greatly suffering. And so we see a lot about who this centurion is. You know, he's um, a, 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 an employee of the Roman government, but he cares deeply for his servants, for people who are below his station, according to their culture. And he seeks Jesus out, wanting his help. And so look what Jesus says in verse 7. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now look at that. Jesus says, okay, you need my help. I will come with you, and I will heal him. And look at the centurion's faith. I am not worthy that you would come into my house, a house that I have infected with my sinfulness. Just speak the word. The, you know, you notice it's singular. Just speak one word. Just say the one word, and my servant will be healed. I know he will. Look at how he describes this, verse 9. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to the one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servants, do this, and he does it. Basically, he's saying, Jesus, I understand authority, and, and what the man is saying to Jesus is, you have absolute authority. He's acknowledging Jesus' divinity, really, before Jesus' own disciples do. He's saying, I know you have absolute power over sickness, over disease. You just say it, and it will be done. He believes that Jesus has supernatural authority over bodily paralysis. He says, just, just say the word. You don't have to come. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to do it. Just, just say it. And I know in that moment that it comes out of your mouth, it's done. Just say it and it will be done. And Jesus hears this, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him. Now, this is going to be important for something in, in just a little bit. Jesus doesn't say this to the man. He says this to those who were following him, which in this moment, those who were around him, this is his disciples, so he's talking to the man. He turns to his disciples, and he says what he's about to say. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He's telling 12 guys from Israel that he's not found in Israel anybody with this kind of faith. He says, you guys, look at this guy. He's got way more faith than all you 12 put together. I haven't found anybody with this kind of faith. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying these are guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who believed, who had faith, uh, who followed after the Lord, anticipating the promise of the Son of God coming. He says, so many people will come from all over the world who will believe, who will be saved. That's what he's talking about. He says, from all over the world, people are going to come and be saved, and they're going to live in heaven. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, he's talking about the people of Israel, if they do not believe, 
will be thrown into the outer darkness. That's another way to say hell. They will not be in heaven if they do not believe. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he's right here, right in, right, I mean, way before he goes to Jerusalem to be crucified and raised from the dead, he's explaining salvation to his 12 disciples. He's saying it's all about following Jesus. It doesn't matter your bloodline. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your parents were Christians. It doesn't even matter how many times you attend church. If you don't believe in Jesus, there is no heaven. And he says, you guys need to learn from the faith of this man. He already believes, and he hasn't even seen me do anything yet. And so then, he, after speaking to his disciples, Jesus turns back to the man. Verse 13. To the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. At that very, at that very instant, the servant was healed. So Jesus just says, go, let it be done as you have believed. Believe meaning faith, as you have had faith, if you have trusted you see, faith is really our response to Jesus. And then Jesus responds to faith with action. Not to say Jesus can't do things without our involvement. He does it all the time. But what we also see is there was a time that Jesus went back to Nazareth. Jesus went back to his, where he was raised as a child. He went back to Nazareth, and the Scripture actually says he was not able to do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Faith is a key component to the activity of what God's going to do in you and through you. He can do it without you, but he chooses to use you, to use, to choose, chooses to use me, chooses to use us. Faith is our response to Jesus, and Jesus then responds to our faith with action. But it's his action in his way, in his time. Even if we don't recognize it, even if we don't want to see it sometimes, even if we want Jesus to do things our way, He's going to do it in his way, in his time, without whatever action he wants to do it as. So faith is our response to Jesus, and Jesus responds to our faith with action. I was going to give you an illustration here, but my wife went all over town and went into about every store and could not find a paddle ball. Because I was going to give you an illustration with a paddle ball. I'll describe it to you. You all know a paddle ball? You got a paddle, you got an elastic string, and you got a ball, and if you have kids, it's broken three seconds after it walks into your house. You know what I'm saying? Um... Uh, as a kid, uh, as a little kid, that was my mom's portable paddle when we went places. But anyway, uh, well, I was going to give you an illustration. Like the paddle was Jesus, and the ball would be us. And, we're, and when we're connected to Jesus by faith, we fulfill our purpose, just as the purpose of a paddle ball is to hit the ball and have it bounce back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And if there's no string, the, the instrument, the paddle ball, doesn't fulfill its purpose. In the same way, we can't fulfill our purpose if we're not connected to Jesus with faith. And the ball and the paddle are working together to fulfill the purpose. The closer we get to Jesus, the more that he reacts and, and, and we then bounce and, and cause great action because of the interaction of the two elements. The paddle's still powerful without the ball. But the paddle and the ball working together create something unique that they do not create separately. The paddle can still hit the ball, but the ball's not going to come back if there's no faith, there's no string attaching the two together. You need them both. If I am connected to Jesus, when I am count, encounter him, I can't help but fulfill my purpose. My purpose. And so we see this man commended by Jesus for his great faith. 
turn, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, this man's got so much faith, way more faith than you guys, way more faith than anybody else in the whole nation. The whole nation that prophets for centuries have been saying the Son of God is coming, and now the Son of God is here, and nobody believes except this guy, and he's not even one of you people. And now let's look at the other instance where Jesus sees great faith, encounters great faith. So that was Matthew 8. Now we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. Just flip over a few pages. Matthew chapter 15. Now this one is even more interesting on a whole new level because of the description here in in verse 21. That's where we're going to start. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Do those names mean anything to anybody? Y'all know exactly where that is on a map, right? I had to triple check it just to make sure. If you've got Israel, Tyre and Sidon are two cities kind of up here in a region called Phoenicia. So it's not Israel. It's a different region. It's up here. It's a Gentile region, okay? Not Jews. They're, They're Gentiles. And that's the region Jesus goes to. He goes to a place away from the Jews, away from the Israelites, to this other place. Verse 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, there's some stuff in there. You know, I've read this story before, but now having studied it pretty, you know, in depth, there's some things that I never realized are there that are there. First off, Matthew, the guy who writes this account, he's one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was there. He saw it, so he wrote it down. Eyewitness account. He calls this woman a Canaanite woman. That word wouldn't mean much to most of us. But the word Canaanite, it's an old word. It's a word that people here in first century didn't use anymore. It's an Old Testament word. They didn't talk about the Canaanites in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament word. Hundreds and hundreds of years before this period. But he refers to this woman as 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 a Canaanite woman on purpose. Because that brings back memories. It brings back all kinds of connotations. Uh, of Old Testament anti-God people, people who are not just, you know, uh, uh, didn't think about God or apathetic towards God, but they were anti-God people. I mean, actively working against God. And so when he says this, she's a Canaanite woman, he uses that because of something Jesus is about to do. He's setting up the situation that's about to take place. She's a Canaanite woman, descended from Old Testament anti-God people. And so Jesus is going to this place where this woman is, and he's intentionally placing himself in a situation to attack deep-rooted racism that are even among his closest followers, because his closest followers are the only ones with him here. They're the only ones with him, his 12 disciples and maybe a few stragglers, but they're the only ones with him. And so this woman, Canaanite woman, Old Testament anti-God people, she comes to Jesus, and look at the title she gives him, O Lord, Son of David. That's a messianic title. That's a messianic, that is the, she's calling him the Son of God. She's calling him the Messiah, the one who's going to save the world. When she gives that title, that's what she's saying. And so here's a messianic title, the Messiah, Son of God, on the lips of what Matthew calls a Canaanite woman, someone who's not supposed to believe in their God. And so this would pique the interest of everyone who's surrounding Jesus. Wait, wait a minute. She's not supposed to say those words. She's not supposed to know who the son of David is. She's not supposed to know who the Messiah is. This doesn't make any sense at all. 
and there's a reason for that. There's a purpose behind the way it's being described because it's being set up for how Jesus is about to present this. And so she comes towards where they're at. She's not close to him yet. She's some distance off, as we're going to see in a minute. And she's crying out, O Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Verse 23. But Jesus did not answer her a word. Does that seem kind of harsh? I mean, a lot of times people come to Jesus and he answers them, even from a great distance. But here comes this woman and he doesn't say anything. He does not tell her anything. And so because she's, Jesus is silent, that sparks an immediate response from his disciples. Look at the rest of that verse. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Send her away, Jesus. She's crying. That, that, that's like incessant, nonstop. She won't be quiet. Jesus, just get rid of her. That's how the disciples respond, because Jesus does not respond. But Jesus isn't being unfeeling. He's not being... He's not, he hasn't lost his compassion. He, he's preparing both the woman and the disciples for what he's about to do. He's about to do something for all of them. And so look at how, what Jesus answered. But notice, Jesus is about to answer, but he's not going to answer the woman. He's answering the disciples' response. Because the woman does not approach Jesus until verse 25. It tells us she came close to him. So the woman's not close enough to hear his response yet. And so Jesus' response in verse 24 is for the disciples in what they said in verse 23. Send her away. Look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus tells his disciples I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house. It seems to agree with them. They said, Jesus, send her away. We already know she's a Canaanite woman. She's not an Israelite. She's not a Jew. They're saying, send her away. And Jesus tells his disciples, well, I was only sent to the Jews. But you remember who Jesus is? He's nowhere near Jews. He's nowhere near Israelites. He went to a completely different region, to, and he's not anywhere near any of them. And so the only people he's around are Gentiles. And he tells his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But here he is, having gone to a place where the lost sheep of the house of Israel are not even present. So what's Jesus doing? Let's take a look. So the woman finally approaches Jesus, verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. <laughs> now, some of you are about to be offended by Jesus' words. Verse 26. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What does it sound like Jesus is calling this woman? A dog. That's what it sounds like. It's not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dog. She comes. She kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. She's acknowledging by son of David that he's the Messiah, and Jesus calls her a dog. Now, it might seem pretty harsh, but again, Jesus is doing more oftentimes than we're aware of even at first glance. He's working in all kinds of ways that we don't often see. He's doing something, he's going to do something both for the woman and for his disciples. Because remember, they're the only ones there. They're listening to what he's saying, they're interacting with him, they're hearing him, they're, they're seeing him, they're watching him. But Jesus says that he came for the lost sheep of Israel, 
Then he tells the woman, it's not right to take the bread and throw it to the dogs. He came for the lost sheep of Israel. That Ultimately, that will fulfill a promise that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 15, that when people of Israel come and get saved, it will cause Gentile to praise the Lord. So it's a fulfillment of prophecy. But uh, Jesus, having left Israel, says this that he says about ministering to the lost people of Israel. Then he says, throw the blessing, the bread, the blessing that was given to the children, throw it to the dogs. And now he, he's speaking uh, obviously, in an illustration, the children being the children of Israel and the dogs being Gentiles. It's not right to take away the bread, the blessing that was given to the children of Israel, and give it to the dogs. But we saw a minute ago when he was talking to the centurion in Romans cha- or Matthew chapter 8 that a lot of people who are the children of Israel, children of the promise, will reject the promise and walk away from the promise. And so we have to take those scriptures together because you can't just take a scripture out of context and completely miss what Jesus is saying. And so he's, he, he gives this word, this statement that has a deeper meaning than we know that by the fact that he's no longer in Israel. But uh, think about it like this. Like he's talking, get, the illustration is giving food to children, taking the food away from children and giving it to the dogs. It's, but him physically not being in Israel, not being where the children are, it's almost like he's crawling into the doghouse with a plate full of steaks in what he's doing, in what he's physically doing, in his action here, in going to Tyre and Sidon. And so he's out there. He's, he's talking to this woman in this way. And listen to her. I don't know how you would respond to those words if somebody called you a dog in the way that we've seen Jesus does. But look at the woman's patience and grace here. And her phenomenal wisdom. And she's she's still on her knees before Jesus. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, the woman's response has nothing to do with the children who are being blessed by the bread. Talking about Jesus' illustration. Jesus doesn't talk about the master in this moment. But the only way that the children or the dogs get any food is because they are close to the master of the house. The children can't get food if the master doesn't provide it. The same way the dogs can't get food if the master doesn't provide it. They both get what they get in order to maintain their sustenance and nutrients because of the graciousness of the master. And we see in the woman's response that she understands exactly what's going on. And Jesus hears her response And look at what he says in verse 28. Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire, and your daughter will be healed. And her daughter was healed instantly. How great is your faith. Because the woman understand. She understood. Even if the disciples didn't grab it in the moment. She understood that that proximity to Jesus blesses everyone. Proximity to Jesus blesses everyone. It blesses the children, it blesses the dogs, it blesses everyone. Jesus was using that language, children and dogs, because that was language of the day. That was language the Jews used. That was language the Gentiles used. He was using it to, to illustrate how wrong it was. That it wasn't about seeing someone as children and seeing someone as dogs. It was about being close to the master of the table. It was about being close to the master. And they would get fed well, I don't know how the dogs eat in your house. 
Whether they just eat dog food, if you have children, then they're going to get some people food too. It's just going to happen. Or when my granddad was alive, the dogs actually ate, probably ate more people food than the people. Not because he dropped it by accident, but because they huddled around his chair and he'd take his food and he would just hand it to the dogs. One dog on this side, one dog on that side. And he would get, you know, second and thirds, not for himself, but because he was feeding the dogs. And his dogs would go to the vet and they'd say, your dog's overweight. And he'd say, I have no idea why. We'd say, granddaddy, we know exactly why that dog's overweight. Let's not pretend. And so proximity to the master of the house blessed everyone, children, dog alike, no matter how they are viewed by anybody else, they come to the master because the master doles out the blessing. No matter what anybody else sees, if they are pursuing the master, which is what the woman knew. That's why she brings up the master. Jesus didn't even speak about the master. And she says, well, it's not about the children. It's not about the dogs. It's about the master. And I'm coming to the master. That's why she came to Jesus. She saw him as the master of the house. Where in that illustration, uh, the children of Israel would have said, they're the children. God the Father is the master. And what the woman is saying by coming to Jesus, she's saying he is the master. She is calling Jesus God. Which if you're a Baptist or you've been in church for a long time, that doesn't, you know, really, you know, uh, shock you in any capacity. You've heard us say that before. But in this day and age, for someone to be saying that is a phenomenal thing. It's revelatory. It's something that would blow their minds. And Jesus' disciples are standing there, having seen the miracles he's done, but not yet acknowledging his greatness. And now this woman, this Canaanite woman, descended from an anti-God people, calling Jesus, the guy they've been around every day for years, she's calling him God, would have blown their minds. And Jesus tells her, because of your faith, because of your, what does he say? Great faith. Her daughter's healed, it says, instantly. Instantly. Because she was close to Jesus. Her proximity to Jesus didn't just bless her, it blessed her daughter because she was close to Jesus. Her proximity to Jesus blessed them. But notice, she was only able to get close to Jesus because Jesus came close to her. Jesus came to where she was, her region, way up. It was northeast or northwest. Jesus came way up there. Nobody else is coming there. There's no Jews there. There's no Israelites there. He says, I've come for the lost of Israel. And yet he goes somewhere where the Israelites won't go because this woman's there and she needs him. So he goes to her, and because he went to her, she was able to come to him. And that's a picture of us. Jesus always comes to us, but he's not going to do all the work for us. We still have to turn to him. We still have to say, Jesus, I need you. We still have to follow after him. He, he is always there all of the time. It's a promise he gives us. If we will f- turn to him, we can realize his presence is always available. But turning to him is a difficult thing sometimes. Because we have these two people, the centurion and this Canaanite woman, only two people who have their faith praised by Jesus is great faith. Phenomenal, amazing faith. But there's this powerful connection in both of these encounters that really defines what great faith is and what is needed for great faith to be real. You might pick up on it yet? Honestly, I didn't pick up on it for a long time. It's humility. Humility. Humility is the fuel that keeps the fire of faith burning. And we're going to talk about what exactly humility is and what it's not. Humility is the fuel that keeps the fire of faith 
burning. Picture a fire, like you're building a fire, you're out camping. Anybody been camping? A few of you, a few of you. Anybody not like camping? Anybody think camping is terrible? There we go. Okay, I almost got an amen on that one. Um, well, if you're building a fire, there's a lot, people, you can build a fire in all kinds of ways. You, you know, you can use lots of lighter fluid or whatever, but uh, you build it the way they tell you. You know, you're supposed to get these little twigs, and you kind of build a little square, and you build that up a little bit, and you get some leaves and stuff on top of that, um, and then you kind of build a little, uh, you know, A-frame type of deal with some thicker logs on top, and you light the leaves on fire. You're supposed to light the twigs on fire. That ends up getting hot enough and lighting the wood on fire. But if you've got no wood, you've got no fire. You can be lighting leaves all day long, and all you're going to get is a bunch of smoke. Smoke's not going to keep you warm, <laughs> not in that kind of fire. And the only way to keep the fire going is to keep adding more wood. If you don't add more wood, there's not going to be any more fire. You've got to keep adding wood for the fire to keep going. And the wood in that illustration is humility. If there is no humility, there is no faith. Because of what faith is. Faith is trust. I mean, in the original language that the New Testament is written in, it's the same word. Faith and trust are the exact same word. Faith is trust. Faith is trusting Jesus. Faith is trusting God. If there is no faith, there is no trust. If there is no humility, there is no faith. Because when humility fades, so does faith. You know, we see it in Scripture, illustrate it. I mean, think about David. When David was a young man, how great was his faith in fighting Goliath? Greater than any faith in the rest of the nation of Israel. But as he grew older and gained more authority, honestly gained more self-importance and pride, what faded is faith. Then came along Bathsheba. Then came along his murder of Bathsheba's husband. Then came along 2 Samuel 24, and he took a census of the entire nation because he wanted to be able to say how great his army was. And his commander of his army, who was not a very nice guy a lot of the time, came to him and said, I don't think that's what God wants you to do. That's not honoring to God because they were supposed to rely on God's faithfulness in building their defenses, not on David's you know, strength in building up the size of his own army. As a result, a bunch of people died because of David's pride. As time went on and he gained more authority and gained more pride, his faith faded and he came to that realization in 2 Samuel 24. You should go read it. It's phenomenal. And he gets to the point where he has to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and he realizes that he's wrong, which is why Scripture calls him a man after God's own heart, because he repented when he was wrong. Many people don't in Scripture. Many of us today don't, honestly, because of our pride, because of our pride. Uh, even, I mean, look at this king before David, Saul. He had hum phenomenal humility right when he became king. He didn't think he was worthy. He didn't think he could do it. And he did it. He relied on God for about a second. And then when the authority came, so came the pride. And he failed God. Pretty quick after he became king, he defied God in an incredible way. And God said, I've taken... The, the leadership away from you and giving it to somebody else because of your pride. None of, I mean, he, he still ruled for a few decades after that, but God did, ended his family line because of his pride right there in that moment because he did not want to trust God. Humility is, is foundational to our faith. As goes your humility, so goes your faith. But in the same way, more humility means more faith. More trust 
in God. You see, humility is really, it's not saying I'm terrible, I'm awful. It's thinking less of yourself, thinking more of somebody else. That's not what humility is. Humility is a, a lifestyle acknowledgement of my need for Jesus. Say, I, need, I can't do this without Jesus. I cannot do this without Jesus. Every day in every way. It's, it's acknowledging that you need Jesus, that I need Jesus. And if I ever begin to promote myself, promote my education, promote my experience, let's get a little personal, promote my opinions, promote my politics, promote my expertise, or promote my country more than I promote Jesus, there's pride. And it is a destructive force against my own personal faith. And what he has done through me and many times in spite of me. And so when, when I promote those other things instead of Jesus, my humility has shrunk to minute proportions and so has my faith. I end up having more faith in myself than I do in Jesus. My wife pointed this scripture out to me this week. In Psalm 51, David wrote this. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's humility. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What David is saying is only in humility will God accept our praise. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus said something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. If we do something, even something religious, even something that might be considered great, like praying. But if we pray and use words that we use to be seen by somebody else, or if we do something good to be seen doing something good, then we don't receive any praise from God. The praise we get from the person we're doing it for is all we're going to get. And that's what David's talking about in Psalm 51. It's about doing it for God in humility and not anybody else. Doing it for God. And so, humility is the fuel that keeps the fire of faith burning. What is the opposite of humility? Pride. Exactly right. Pride. The original sin. Pride. The very first sin was pride. That was Satan. Angel of God. Thought he could be a better God than God. That's pride. Pride is the original sin. And honestly, if, if we were completely self-aware, there is more pride in all of us than we ever realize. When I first got married, I had a realization of how selfish I was. And then I thought I was doing good. And then you have kids, and you realize, man, I am even, there's even more there than I ever thought was there. And then you got another one, and then you got another one, and then you got another one, and then you got another one. Maybe you don't have five like I do, but... <laughs> You didn't need as many. You didn't need as many reminders of your pride as I did. Uh, I'm a very prideful person, very prideful. And if my pride has ever caused any of you offense or wound, I apologize. In my pride, it, it pride it, it, it wreaks havoc on us. 
And we don't often, we're not often aware that it's there. It's sneaky. You know, pride is even in our prayers sometimes. We think we're praying for one thing, but the pride is there, and we don't realize it. And it may come as a realization later on, man, that prayer was so prideful. And we may think we're praying for, for something good in the moment, and we're, we're in it, but we're really praying in pride because, let's say it this way, what we end up doing is self-deceiving ourselves, and we label wish fulfillment as prayerful expectancy. And what we, we, we do sometimes when we pray is we try to put God in our expectations of how we want the world to be. We try to put God in, in, in <laughs> what we think. Again, this may not be you at all. I'm just, confession is good for the soul. It, 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 James 5.16, confess to one another. I've done this in my prayers. I've taken a prayer and I've said a prayer and I want God to do this thing. But in saying this, I'm not what, what ends up happening in my spirit, not in my words, but in my spirit, is I want, in reality, God to do what I'm telling him to do. And there's not the trust that even if he doesn't do what I tell him to do, that, that it's okay. But that's where the faith is. In humility, I need to be aware of that and say, God, I trust you irregardless of what happens here. Irregardless of what happens here. You see, this, this encounter actually happened with Peter and Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise from the dead. Peter comes to Jesus. So Peter's talking to Jesus, which you could say is a prayer. I'm talking to Jesus' prayer. Peter's coming to Jesus, and he says, no, no, no. May it never be. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. You ever said that to somebody? Maybe you've said it in your head. Get behind me, Satan. I doubt many of us have said it out loud. I'm sure many of us have thought it many times. Am I right? Or am I alone in that? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. And look at what, let me, you know what, let's flip over there. This is not on your screen. Matthew, uh, uh, that's Luke. Matthew 16, um, down in verse where, 23. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's saying, you are being prideful. You're not setting your heart on the things of God. You're setting them on the things of man. You're, you, you want me to do what you want me to do. And you're not thinking about what God has planned. God's got something better planned. But we're not, but I, I'm, I'm off my notes here, but think about that. How many times have you ever prayed for something and it's not because you want to trust God with the moment, it's because you want God to do what you want. Do you ever do it? And there's something I've done, and you try to say, God, this will bring you so much glory if you did X, Y, and Z. God, in my mind, I'm laying out the plan for you, God. If you did this, it would I could see great things. This person would get saved, and that person would get saved. God, if you just did it like I'm telling you to do it, God, do it like I want. No, we're not going to say that to God. God, do it like I want. But that's kind of what we're communicating. And I'd, I've come to that realization is there's pride in that and saying, God, you have to do it my way. And there's not trust there. And we may acknowledge, I know it's in the back of our mind, we're thinking, God, do it this way. But I know you're not, but, you know, I'll still trust you. I'll still follow you. But there's pride that is lacing our words when we're communicating this. And we're not praying, honestly, in faith-filled expectancy. We're praying 
in wish fulfillment. And it takes incredible reliance on the Lord in the moment to recognize the difference between the two. And even if God gives you special revelation today and you begin to pray in phenomenal faith-filled expectancy, that doesn't mean that tomorrow it won't creep back into wish fulfillment. Speaking from experience of this very week. In reality, we're wishing that God would do whatever we want him to do. Do it like I want, God. Do it like I want, God. His, <laughs> think about it, his creation, us, in our broken hearts, in our fallen hearts. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all else. So when somebody says follow your heart, they're saying follow your sin nature. So he's, our heart's deceitful above all else. So us, in our, his creation, in our brokenness, in our fallen hearts, we're wishing that he would do what we want him to do. You know, sometimes what ends up, and what I've come to realize, is he's teaching us that wish fulfillment is not faith. And there's a difference. That wish fulfillment is not faith. Faith is trust. Faith is, God, I will trust you no matter what. No matter what. That's not to say expectancy is bad. But when we put our faith in the expectancy and not in God, it's missing the point. And, and it's a fine line sometimes between the two that we don't often see or I, I often miss. An expectancy and, and assumption many times are pride-filled expressions of our fallen hearts. Assumptions, we make assumptions about each other all the time. We make assumptions about each other all the time. We see a partial situation, we have partial information, and we jump to a conclusion and move on and make an assumption about an individual. And in doing that, we think that we know better and, 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 and our judgment is perfect, and we make a judgment, we prejudge them. We have a prejudice against them. Prejudice, prejudge them about their situation. And we make an assumption about their situation and not knowing everything. Instead of trusting God to take care of it. Instead of, we do this with God. We make assumptions about what God should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing and how God should handle a situation. And in those assumptions, there's so much pride. Maybe this isn't for you. Maybe this is just confession time from the preacher. But there's so much pride in the assumption in, in, in trying to fit God into what I want him to be. When in reality, the only expectancy present in any given situation involving a believer should be that God expects me to trust him no matter what the outcome is. The only assumption about any situation involving a believer should be that God assumes I will trust him no matter what the outcome is. No matter what decision somebody else makes, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. I will trust him no matter what. No matter what. No matter, even if the person making the decision I think is the absolute wrong decision, and I may not in reality know every thing that goes into that decision, but I'm making a judgment call about that decision, think about it in these terms. You know, whether or not we see a football season or not, who doesn't make a judgment call about the decisions a coach should do? And come Monday morning, say, if he only did this, if they only did that, I'm a Cowboys fan. That's how we lived. <laughs> if only, if only the owner did this, if only he fired himself, if only that coach did this, he would still have a job. If only this, that, and the other thing. Man, that's prideful. That's, 
crazy, but we do it all the time. You, I'm, I'm telling you again, that's how I do it. And that's, maybe that's why the Cowboys are so bad. It's bringing us to a point of humility. We have to understand the truth of the situation. Uh, trust God for the Cowboys, <laughs> for their salvation. But we need to depend on the Lord, depend on Jesus, and realize that the pride is often there and we don't see it. Think about this. I was talking about this with one of my sons this morning. In Numbers, um, um, Numbers 12, it says that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. Man, that would be something to aspire to. But you know who wrote Numbers? Moses. He wrote that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. What? <laughs> Don't you... <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe it's because he didn't sign numbers, but Jewish history tells us he's the one who wrote it. He wrote down for billions of people to read that he is the most humble man on the face of the earth. That's quite a statement. In stating it, it negates the statement. Unless he really was, then God was able to speak through him. I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. Say, Moses, Numbers 12, 3. I mean, come on. Let's be real here. Was that, really, come on. I know I can't write that statement about me. I don't know about you. But if we are to have this big faith, big faith. I mean, Peter walked on water, and what did Jesus say after? Oh, you have little faith. And here these two Gentiles are, and he commends both of their faith. Big faith because of their humility. Peter had to be humbled in, an, in a <laughs> phenomenal way when he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus had to seek him out and bring him back. Humility is, is the foundation of big faith. Big faith cannot be had without humility. It cannot be had without a dependency on God and an acknowledgement that I need God. I need him every day. I need him to help me make decisions uh, uh, interactions with my wife, with my kids, with the church, with, with going to the store. I need him. I depend on him. I need him. Financial decisions, future decisions, plan. I need Jesus. And if I don't acknowledge that, that's hubris, that's pride. And in the pride, my faith begins to be eaten away at. And who knows the kind of water-walking miracles that could have happened had I had humility and faith in the moment in those interactions rather than striking out in my pride. Depend on Jesus. Trust Jesus. Follow Jesus. Because people will fail you. They will. People will fail you. It's You will fail people. It's our nature. We're not perfect. Your husband will fail you. Your wife will fail you. Your kids will fail you. Your boss will fail you. Your parents will fail you. They're human beings. It happens. Where has the grace gone? I was talking with somebody right out there this morning. We need grace with each other. People will fail you. Your preacher will fail you. It's in our, it's in our very DNA. But Jesus never fails, ever. So we depend on Jesus every day, every decision, every reaction. Depend on Jesus. 
Depend on Jesus. Find faith in Jesus. Find trust in Jesus. Follow Jesus. Maybe you need to depend on Jesus for the very first time today, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, and then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Maybe today you need to say, I need to believe in Jesus now for the first time. I need to follow Jesus. I need to trust Jesus for the very first time. Maybe you need to depend on Jesus for really honestly, truly, humbly for the first time in a long time and come to a realization that pride, the original sin, has been handed down from father to son, mother to daughter, for millennia. Not on purpose, but because we're human beings. And the only way through is a dependence upon Jesus. Will you trust Jesus today, whether for the first time, whether for the first time in a while? Will you truly trust him? Have the, 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 the title for this message, Faith Fuel. Light your faith on fire with the wood of humility and frame it in that context. I need Jesus. I need him. If you've been here very long, you've heard a little bit of my testimony. I'm a guy who stutters. And I get up here and I preach to you. And I'm a stutterer. Stutterer, yeah. I'm a stutterer. And yet, somehow, I can talk to you guys for 30, 40, sometimes 50 minutes. And it doesn't come. Not because of me. In my own nature, I'm there. When I get tired, come to my house in the evenings. If I talk for very much and I'm tired, it just won't stop. That and my Houston accent comes out. And, and I get hung up on a word. And I just got to slow down. <laughs> Let's get back. But somehow God does it. Because I know I can't do this on my own. I can't. It cannot happen without Jesus. That's the way we need to be living our lives is we can't do it without Jesus. Will you trust him today?